But I want to jump right into Scripture here today and think deeply about the Bible and its effect on us. The title of this message, if you like titles, is The Bible in Your Head, Meditation as a Way of Life. And so we're going to, I'll read it now, and then we will pray for insight. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, this word is holy. It's eternal. It is fixed It doesn't change in meaning. It is not subject to our interpretation as if we can impose meaning on something that you've said. Our job today, Lord, is to find out what you mean in this text and to shape our lives around how you think and what you intend for us. And so we pray that you would not only open our eyes, that we would have understanding, but we pray that you would shape how we think and how we live because we have encountered you in these holy words. We pray for this, knowing that Jesus will bring these prayers before you, Father, and that you will answer, for we come in him. Amen. Amen. This psalm puts a choice before everyone who reads it. Will you choose God's ways that lead to life or your own ways that lead to death? And how will you recognize the choices when they come before you? The place where this choice choosing between life and death originates is in the mind. And this psalm points out that the choices that lead to life and the choices that lead to death come from what we think about. So the key question that arises from the psalm is, on what do you meditate? Verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, the minute I bring up meditation, a lot of you, what pops into your mind from the society that we live in is the influence of Eastern religions, 
where meditation is associated with sitting in a quiet place and emptying your mind of all thought. Breathing deeply, rhythmically, chanting a nonsense word, relaxing your muscles, emptying your mind. But this is far from what the psalmist is talking about. In fact, his form of meditation is the opposite of Eastern meditation. He is persuading us to fill our minds, to think deeply and carefully and constantly about God's law or God's Torah Uh, which is bigger than just rules. Uh, The Torah is God's revealed will. It's this law that we call the Bible. So the direction of your life and your experience of life and the destination of your life are all determined by what you think about all the time. Okay, stop and just realize the direction of your life hinges on what you think about. Now, the challenge of meditation and meditation on God's Word comes to every generation. In the past, for many, the problem was a lack of access to God's Word. You didn't have a Bible. You didn't have anybody to explain the Bible to you. That's not our problem. Our problem today is that our minds are assaulted with so much stimuli all the time that it seriously degrades our ability even to meditate. And I I don't want you to listen to me, so I've brought some other voices into this sermon. I want you to listen to some people who have looked carefully into the change in our society, which has produced changes in our very brain, all this through our constant interaction with digital media. William Powers is a journalist. He and his family lived in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. And uh, some years ago, five, six years ago, in their desire to find a simpler life, he and his family moved to the outer reaches of Cape Cod. Even there, he reports, in that remote part of our nation, and I've been there, it feels remote, their lives remained busy, busy, busy. And it was all because they were, as the phrase goes, hyper-connected. Powers noticed that he was losing the ability to think deeply, that his thoughts were constantly interrupted with phone calls, texts, tweets, reminders, updates, announcements, notifications. He was aware that those people most productive in life were able to think deeply and for long periods of time about one thing which created a sense of what one psychologist calls flow, which resulted in new discoveries and insights into the challenges of their life. Well, William Powers was afraid that he was losing this ability to attend to one thing, to concentrate, to think deeply. Here's how he described 
uh, early in his book, it's called Hamlet's Blackberry, how he described information running through his mind on a daily, in fact, hourly, in fact, minute-by-minute basis. Listen to this description of his uh, mental experience. Someone you know has just seen a great movie. Someone else had an idle thought. There's been a suicide bombing in South Asia. Stock soared today. Pop star has a painful secret. Someone has a new opinion. Someone's in a taxi. Please support this worthy cause. He needs that report from you. Where is it? Someone wants you to join the discussion. A manhunt is on for the killers. Try this in bed. Someone's enjoying sorbet. Mmm. Your account is now overdue. Easy chicken pot pie. Here's a brilliant analysis. Latest vids from our African safari. Someone, someone responded to your comment. Time's running out. Apply now. This is my new hair. Just heard an awesome joke. Someone is working hard on his big project. They had their baby. Click here for the latest vote count. Does that sound familiar? Does that describe at all your experience of a day? This experience of being bombarded with information through our electronic devices is what Powers calls digital maximalism. And the problem isn't just that when we have a computer open or a phone on, that we can just turn them off. The way we interact with our media is actually changing, literally changing our brains. Let me quote another journalist, Nicholas Carr, published a book in 2010 called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. What he learned is disturbing. Let me quote him for you. Quote, what the net seems to be doing is chipping away my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm in lo- online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Carr learned that this is more than habit. There comes with our digitally distracted lifestyle a physiological change in our brains. Let me quote him again. Though what we do and how we do it moment by moment, day by day, consciously or unconsciously, through that we alter the chemical flows in our synopses and change our brains. And when we hand down our habits of thought to our children through the examples we set, the schooling we provide, the media we use, we hand down as well the modifications in the structure of our brains. Now you might say, so? Well, Carr reports that our brains can only handle so much information at one time. Scientists call that amount of information your cognitive load. So to quote him again, when the load exceeds our mind's ability to store and process the information, when the water overflows the thimble, we're unable to retain information or 
to draw conclusions with the information already stored in our long-term memory. We can't translate the new information into what he calls schemas. Our ability to learn suffers. Our understanding remains shallow. Experiments indicate that we reach the limits of our working memory. It becomes harder to distinguish relevant information from irrelevant information, signal from noise. We become mindless consumers of data. Now, I can tell you from my own experience, uh, there is a certain mindlessness. I, I used to criticize my parents for mindlessly watching television sitcoms, uh, which I don't do, but I can spend a mindless evening relaxing and getting away through surfing the web and after an hour or two closing my web browser and if you said, well, what did you do this evening? What did you see? What did you learn? I would say, I don't remember. Because <laughs> I don't. I don't. All right, one other writer. Because I want you to be persuaded that this is a problem and it's not just the rant of a Bible teacher, okay? Uh, Maggie Jackson and her book, Distracted. The Erosion of Attention and the Coming Dark Age. Ugh. She writes, The way we live is eroding our capacity for deep, sustained, perceptive attention. The building block of intimacy, wisdom, and cultural progress. This disintegration may come at great cost to ourselves and to our society. From what I can tell, the writers of these books are not Christians. They're concerned about our interior sense of peace, our sense of well-being, the cohesion of society and relationships, the ability to be productive at work. But these issues are not our concern today, okay? So I'm not, I'm not going to talk about finding peace by escaping the Internet. I want you to think for a moment about how the impact of a scattered, distracted mind, its impact on our ability to read and understand the Bible. That's what I'm after today, okay? God did not give us the Bible in tweets. The Psalms are not 150 blog posts. Jeremiah was not written for a cable news minute. Everything that you've learned about reading from your electronic habits is useless or worse, it's harmful to your ability to read the Bible. A digitally distracted life trains you away from a life that lives fueled by God's blessing given to us in his word. It does. It trains you away from the meditation that the psalmist speaks of in Psalm 1. Digital reading is fast. The Bible was written to be read slowly. Digital reading comes in unrelated bits and pieces. The Bible must be read as one coherent book, one very large book that fits together in utterly amazing ways. Digital reading requires skimming and jumps around from one unconnected sentence or picture or video to another. 
the Bible must be read with an eye for interconnections and themes that develop over many pages. So I want, I've created this backdrop so that you can hear this psalm in the world that we live in. Because this psalm is far more important and increasingly important because of what's happened to us and the way we interact with words and mental stimuli in general. So the first point uh, that the psalm makes in verses 1 and 2 is that meditation directs your life. Meditation directs your life. The man blessed by God, does not get counsel from the wicked. He does not do what sinners do. He does not join with those who mock what is right and true. Instead, instead of those things, he meditates on the law of the Lord all the time. Now, the poetry of verses 1 and 2 is absolutely excellent because it creates a contrast you don't expect. Look at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not on the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, what would you expect? Okay, setting it up. He's saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Well, what do you do? You would expect him to say that he would, his delight would be in the counsel of the righteous, the way of the godly, the seat of the worshiper. But instead, he contrasts those three things to meditation on his law. Instead, instead of walking in the counsel of the wicked, instead of standing in the way of sinners, instead of sitting in the seat of scoffers, he meditates on the law of God day and night. So the logic of verses 1 and 2 is that the counsel you take, the way you conduct your life, the people you identify with, all depends upon the content of your meditation. Do you see that? You've got to get that. That's, that's the big point. Verses 1 and 2. The assumption is everybody meditates. The psalm forces some questions on us, though. Is my meditation intentional or unintentional? What do I think about when my mind is free of immediate responsibility? Does my meditation lead to life? or to death. Now, let's take a minute and think about this word, meditation. It's a very interesting word. The root behind the Hebrew word is uh, the idea of muttering. Okay? Muttering. To mutter is to say something over and over again under your breath. When you're muttering, you're turning something over and over in your mind. You're thinking about it. You may be involved in other activities, but your mind is meditating. It's thinking about that thing. Or the object of your thoughts is so important to you that you stop all other activities, eliminate all distractions, and simply think, simply meditate on that one thing. The week before I first preached this sermon, uh, one of the worship leaders in our church, Ryan, introduced the song we sang. He said, introduced it by saying that he had a miserable week with many difficulties and challenges all week, but that 
he kept singing in his head the song, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. And he said that got him through the week. He was meditating. This is hard. I don't know what to do. I need you. Oh, I need you. We're all meditators. We meditate on things we fear. What if the cancer screening comes back positive? What if we don't get the contract renewed? What if she turns me down? And we play out in our minds how we'll react to some anticipated threat. Or we meditate on things we desire. That new house she will make my life better. Vacation is going to be so fun. If I get this promotion, I'll finally be able to do the work I love. Okay, so we're always meditating. You're always meditating. The psalmist says that the person who is blessed, the person who finds himself living under the good of God's favor, meditates on the law of the Lord. So his meditation is intentional and it is focused and it fills his day and his night. This word law here could be more pointedly translated instruction or authoritative teaching. In effect, the man who's blessed meditates on what the Bible teaches, all that the Bible teaches. Now, the book of Psalms, and I need to limit comments here, but the book of Psalms was arranged intentionally. Okay, it's not like somebody collected 150 psalms, threw them in a box, picked out one after the other, and put them together. They're arranged intentionally into five books. And many scholars think those five books are uh, to mirror the five books of Moses. Whether or not that's true, this first psalm is here intentionally, and it's saying, here's how to read the psalms. Here's how to read the Bible. You meditate. Now, I introduced this sermon with quotes from secular authors who've noticed that our culture has become anxious, distracted, nervous, and edgy, unable to focus. It's not that individuals have ADHD. We culturally have. We are a social ADHD society. Okay? It's all of us. It's... I was talking to a young woman recently who was telling me how anxious she's been and how stressful her life is. And I said, why don't you do this? Why don't you take your Bible and go to a quiet place where there's no electronic media there? Might be your bedroom where you just take it all out. Might be another place, sit in a park. And just go bring a bottle of water and just go sit for six hours with no plans I said, I think you'll start to pray and you'll start to read. And she looked at me like, oh, no, please don't ask me to do that. Maybe she did. I don't know. But I just noticed it was like a, it's like a wild thought, a wild thought to sit in one place with no connectedness for six hours. Now, I'm appealing to us today to take this seriously 
Because this change in our habits and the resulting change in our brains inhibits meditation. Especially because we have allowed our brains to become a room full of pinball machines, ringing, chirping, calling for our attention at all hours of the day and night. So verses 1 and 2 call us to take responsibility for what we think about throughout our day. It's not that we can't attend to responsibilities through digital devices. Obviously, I, I, I don't think I could do my job without uh, a computer. And it's not that we can't find enjoyment in a hobby or music or a book or a movie, even if they're digitally based. I'm not opposing those things. The question is, how do they affect the underlying soundtrack of our lives? And this psalm says that soundtrack should be Scripture. And notice again in verse 3, I'm sorry, in verse 2, how it opens. Um, Verse 2 opens, it's not saying that you have to meditate on God's Word because God is like some cosmic tyrant who has a gun to your head saying, meditate, because I tell you to meditate. No, this, the psalmist says that the blessed man, this is his delight. This is what he finds a good time. This is what brings him joy. You want to go there because you want to go there. You want to go there because your great delight is what God has revealed in the Bible. Our best and our most pleasant thoughts are those that delight us. And God extends to us this book and says, this is for you, for your delight. Now, the rest of the psalm, and this is point two in this sermon, verses three through six make the point that meditation on the word allows you to live when everything else is dying. Meditation on the word allows you to live when everything else is dying. And so verses three and four compare the person who meditates on the law day and night to a tree planted by streams of water and someone who does not meditate on the law of God and follow the law of God like chaff. Now, I have to explain what chaff is because we're not familiar with chaff. I've got a couple farmers in my congregation, but I don't know if there's any here. Uh, And even if you are, you may not know what chaff is. Let me explain. When you harvest grain, it comes in these big stalks. And what you do is you lay it out in what's called the threshing floor, And you take these big, heavy sledges or sleds and you run it back and forth over the grain and the stalk and the the, uh, husk of the seed. And what happens is it separates the seed from all the other plant material. Then you take these big forks or rakes and you dig them into the pile and you throw it up in the air and you pick a place where there's a prevailing wind. And what happens is the seed, which is heavy, falls back to the ground, and the chaff, which is worthless, blows away. Blows away. When you think like the sinner in this psalm, the scoffer, your life becomes insubstantial. It becomes weightless. It becomes meaningless. So when the wind blows... 
you get blown away. But the metaphor before that describes the person who delights in God's word to the point that it is his constant companion. He's like a fruit tree. But this is a fruit tree like none other in the world that I know of. As far as I can tell, fruit trees are deciduous. They lose their leaves once a year. This fruit tree never loses its leaves and always produces fruit in season, even in extreme drought. And the reason this tree doesn't wither in drought and continues to bear fruit is that its roots get nourishment from a stream that does not run dry. So it's not dependent on rain. It's not dependent on the changing seasons. It's not dependent on the type of weather, the climate, or climate change. This water runs to your soul through meditation on God's words. You can't know the depth of a person's life. You can know a person who is highly educated, who is highly disciplined, who has a marvelous personality, who seems successful in everything they know. You can't know the depth of their life until he or she is tested by drought or storm. Here the metaphor is drought. When the external sources of nourishment go away, when people abandon you or betray you, when you get a chronic illness, when you become unemployed or run out of money, in these circumstances you find out if your true self is dependent on the temporary, cheap life the world offers or if your true self is nourished by something deep within you, something that is deep outside of you outside of this world, deeper than your own soul, something that never runs out, this unfailing stream. So if you're drinking constantly, if your roots are tapped into this stream, the Word of God, even in the best seasons when you don't feel the need, you're tapped in. When the bad day comes, you're going to survive and even bear fruit during the most difficult seasons of your life. And in verse 5 and 6, you find out that this not only is a way to live in this life, but you'll last beyond this life into eternal life. You will stand in the judgment. You will be counted in the congregation of the righteous. You will not perish as the wicked will perish. And the reason for this, verse 6, is that the Lord knows your way. When you're meditating on him and following him in the path that his word guides you in, he's watching over your life. He follows you around because he cares for you, desires to help and to bless you. So in verses 5 and 6, the choice is between judgment and blessing, the personal care of God and wasting away in isolation in this life and into eternal life. This is why it's so essential. See, yeah, we all got problems today, okay? I hate to bring this up because you'll start meditating on them. 
But the biggest problem we have I was talking to somebody about accountability and accountability groups. And I said, you know, the Bible only speaks about one accountability group that we're all required to be a part of. It comes on the last day. God calls you to account. That's the accountability group you want to be prepared for. Okay? Who's going to stand in that judgment? How are we going to stand? Well, we have to meditate on the Word of God. And where this takes us, because if you're honest about your life and you look at what the Word of God requires of you, you say, I'm not going to stand. I got a history of failure. I got a history of failure that leads up to this very day. How am I going to stand? And so you have to read Scripture because the Bible is one book. Uh, J.I. Packer says if you want to summarize the entire message of the Bible, it's God saves sinners. How does he save sinners? How is he going to save a sinner like me? Well, my meditation goes to Jesus Christ hanging on a cross, paying a debt I would have to pay with my own life, and then rising from the dead so that not only do I not have to pay that debt, but I can join with him in this eternal life. So as my meditation takes me through the day, it always, Scripture always moves me in the direction of the Bible, of the gospel. You pick any page in this book, it will point you in some way to the gospel, to the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the rule, the present right now rule of Jesus Christ. That's where this book takes you. So you will stand in the judgment. You know more than the psalmist did. Now, the passage demands some thoughts on how to. How do I meditate on Scripture in an age of distraction where the Internet has turned my brain into pudding? and sent it in a thousand directions. How, how, how? Uh, So I want to just finish this sermon uh, with some ways to make meditation on the Word a way of life. Okay, this is not exhaustive, but I want to give you something. I want to give you something you can do this week. And I, I, I challenged my church to do this, and then I came back next week and said, who did it and what, you know. So I'm going to give you something you can do to try this out. So the call to action is to meditate on God's law day and night. In other words, all the time. Now, a couple of things we don't really realize. Uh, do you know that printed books have only existed for a little more than 500 years? And that mass-produced books have only existed for maybe a couple hundred Uh, There was a time where your church community might own a Bible. And you would come on Sunday to worship, and there would be extended reading from the Bible, because that's the only access you had to it. So how do you have a Bible in that situation? Well, the way they got their Bibles is that they memorized it. So you learned by hearing it read and memorizing it. See, when you have Scripture memorized, you can carry it around with you everywhere you go. Uh, You don't have to worry about your battery running out. You don't have to worry about rain. You don't have to say, I forgot. This psalm is not calling us to carry a printed or digital Bible with us everywhere and to read as we go about our lives. It's not a bad idea, 
but that's not what it's calling us to. It's calling us to hear and remember and consciously think about the contents of Scripture as we go about our lives. That requires some degree of memorization. Now, whether you intentionally memorize or you just go over something so many times, you, you have it in your head. Uh, but you should be the kind of person that you push a button and a Bible verse pops out. And you can start anywhere. I'm, now, I'm not going to get more specific than that, but I think we need to consider this. I was delighted to see on your, uh, your order of worship that you have an all-church memory verse. I, I would do that. I would do that. It's not too hard. It's just that we live in a society that is wired for not memorizing. And you actually have, now I'm going off my sermon topic, but you actually have people in the digital elites who claim that we shouldn't memorize anything because we can carry it all in our device. Why do all that work of memorizing when you can keep it in your device? And I would say, well, why? It's because you won't always have your device, pal, and your soul will be affected by the clutter and clatter of your digitally maximalized life. So we've got to get the word in us and know it. Now, before I get practical again, I, I have, as Devin mentioned, I'm becoming a dinosaur, and I have taught the Bible. I've tried to persuade people to read the Bible, to read the Bible intelligently, to read it profitably, not just to read it as an academic book, to read it as a book of life. I've, I've, my whole life, this has been something I've been in, desirous of for not just myself, not just my family, but for everybody, my whole life. And what I've found is that it's not at all unusual that people who have a very high view of Scripture, if you say, what's your doctrine of Scripture? Oh, it is the inerrant, infallible Word of God spoken by the prophets. The canon is closed. They can explain all that to you. But they don't find reading it delightful. In fact, they can find it frustrating and boring. We tend to read our Bibles the way we take a multivitamin. Okay. Somebody told us we should, but it's tasteless, and I can't tell whether it helps or not. <laughs> you, know, you feel any better? No. <laughs> but I'm supposed to take it. I don't want rickets. <laughs> now, I think a major reason for the I don't get anything out of Bible reading is, now, prepare to be shocked, Okay. Because I'm speaking to an educated audience. We don't know how to read. We don't. We don't know how to read. I'm not talking about the skill you learned in the first grade. I'm not talking about the reading you did in high school or college where you scan a page for information so that you can find what might be on the test. I'm talking about reading the way the writers of Scripture expected people to read. To read slowly, to read deeply, to read carefully, to consider every word. 
to look for patterns in the paragraphs and how they create a theme for the entire book, to think about what you read. You're going through the Gospel of John. And as you read through, you find the vocabulary is so simple that any beginning Greek student, by the end of an introductory Greek course, can read through the book with a, a dictionary. So it's, it's very simple. Well, as you start to go through John, you say, uh, not so fast. This is one of the deepest books in the Bible. There are things going on here in themes and word choices. You know, why does John say that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night? Well, there's a theme there of what happens at night. Let's look. As we read through the book, we find out that night is not a place of insight. It's a place of ignorance. So you, you begin to see those things. You start to be a reader. You start to be a reader. You don't say, oh, night. Well, it must have been night. That's, there's night. Well, maybe not. Maybe there's more going on here. That's the kind of reading that the Bible calls you to. It calls you to think about what you read. To compare your world to the world of the Bible and ask why there's a difference and whether something needs to change in your world so it matches the world of the Bible. That's what we're called to. Reading on the web and reading the Bible have one thing in common. They both use words. Beyond that, there are two different things. On the web, words are cheap. On the web, you skim for bits of information. Web readers hyperlink from news story to blog post to social media feed to web page to video. People who study reading habits on the web will tell you that few people read a web page from start to finish. They read a portion, skip around, look for something they find interesting, and when the going gets uninteresting or confusing click, they move to another site. So this is how most of us read today. You can't read the Bible that way. And if you do read the Bible that way, you're going to find it tedious, boring, and frustrating, and you're going to look for something else to click on that seems more interesting to you. The Bible is to be read slowly. The writers expect you to consider every word. They want you to see that they repeat words and tell stories in patterns. They expect you to hear the words because most of the Bible was originally not written down, but spoken and then written down. And so they expect you to hear the words and then think about them. Silent reading is a relatively new thing. And uh, I've found, whether it's reading difficult biblical texts or reading different literary texts, if I just read it out loud, uh, I, I get it quicker. So uh, you might want to try that. What I'm describing goes for all great literature, especially the Bible. Great books cannot be understood from one reading. They must be read repeatedly to understand them. So much of the Bible is story. Stories happen over time. The writer lets them unfold in a way that develops themes, but he rarely states the theme. He gives details to give you clues along the way. He expects you to get it by reading carefully and reading over and over again. Much of the Bible is poetry. Psalm 1 is 
poetry. Good poetry is not written so that you immediately understand. You have to repeat it and listen to it and let the metaphors and rhythms and repeated lines and words work on your mind until you have this aha moment. And you get it. Some of it. All of it. That's how it works. When you learn to read God's word the way it was intended to be read, it's delightful. It is delightful. That's the promise of this psalm. God promises that if you'll mutter day and night, if you'll mutter his word, if you'll meditate on his word, you will find a delight that you will not find anywhere else because that delight is in him. God makes delight available to those who ponder his words throughout their day, to those who meditate. So as I said, Bible reading is not like taking a multivitamin. The Bible, think of it as this many-chambered castle with vast number of hallways and rooms. And in each room there is stored treasure. But you must explore and open doors and examine what's in each room. And as you move your way through all the rooms, you find the beauty and the greatness and the glory and the richness of the castle as a whole and the king who gave you the castle to explore. All right, practical. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want 20 minutes of your day for the next seven days. 20 minutes. I can't check, but I'm asking. I would recommend it be early morning because... Nobody needs you early in the morning. For some moms here, that's really early. But find a time. Then get in a place where you are not distracted. So that means that you turn off. That's right, off, not airplane mode. All your electronic devices. And you put all your electronic gear in a place you at least can't see. Okay? And you don't, so you can't pick it up. Then, okay, so you get in that place for that 20 minutes and then pray this prayer. Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Open my eyes, Lord. Open our eyes to the wonder of your law. Then read one chapter of the Bible might be a portion you plan to read. If you don't have a plan, uh, read Psalm 1. Uh, read it, if you can, three times through. That'll take longer than 20 minutes, maybe. Maybe not. Depends on Psalm 1. You could read three times in probably six minutes or less. Read it aloud. Read it three times. Read the same chapter every day of the week. You don't know where to go? Just read the same chapter. Then, after having done that, something's going to stand out to you. One of the verses that you read is going to stand out to you. And so pick that verse or that sentence or even a phrase and write it down. Okay, write it on a 3 by 5 card or something. Don't put it in your phone. 
write it on a card. You're not supposed to have your phone with you at this time. Write it down. Here's what you do. You take it and you read it out loud ten times. You look at each word as you read it ten times. Okay? Then you turn the card over and you say it out loud ten times. Okay? Now, after doing that, 20 times through the verse, guess what? You'll have it. You have it memorized. So now you've got your own mental Bible ready to take you through your day. And so uh, it can be helpful to carry the card in your purse or a pocket and bring it out at different times if you can, or just to recite it at different times as you're driving down the road, as you're transitioning from one meeting to the next meeting. As you're waiting in line at the grocery store, you bring up that verse and you just say it to yourself. So you do that every day. I'd recommend starting this afternoon, but at least start tomorrow. Do it for a week. And then next Sunday, come back here and say, I did it. And see what happens. And I think you might discover that you just opened the door to a castle full of treasures. Or better, I think you're going to find your roots are reaching down into your soul in such a way that taps you into a river that never runs dry. That's the promise of Psalm 1. That's what God offers us today. Let's pray. Jesus, when you left this earth, you promised that you would give us the Holy Spirit so that you would be with us always. But we, we, we cannot understand the Spirit unless we have the Word. And so we need these words. We're desperate for these words. Our life depends on these words. Even if we're in a very busy season of life or a very prosperous season of life, these words are needed. We need them for the drought. We need them for the time that we're thrown into Vanity Fair and, and tempted by all kinds of illusory pleasures and possessions. Please make us a people that we can say with the psalmist, my delight is in the law of the Lord because I meditate on it day and night. Make us this kind of a people, Lord, in the midst of a distracted, anxious, confused generation. Make us a people whose hearts are at rest because we find our rest in you as you've revealed yourself in your word. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.